Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now the author of Hebrews, as we've seen, has a singular motivation with regard to his readers. And it is this, that he wants to hold up Jesus high. He wants the people that he's writing to, to see how great Jesus is in his person and in the work that he has done, so that they would continue to hold on to him and persevere in their faith. And he's talked about in these first few chapters, just in the different ways of who Jesus is, and in some ways even pointing to what he has done. But in these chapters particularly, he's focusing on one aspect of Jesus' work, and that is his priestly work, the priestly work of Jesus. Now, as we've seen in the last few weeks, God is instituted because of the sinfulness of man, that there's been a breach between sinful man and holy God. And a sinful man cannot simply approach God or be reconciled back to God. There needs to be a mediator, and that mediator is nothing but a priest that God has instituted. And But particularly what the author has been emphasizing is that Jesus now is not just any priest, but he's a Melchizedekian priest of a totally different order. And last week we saw at the start of chapter 7, what is the significance of this Melchizedekian priest? What's the big deal about Jesus particularly being this Melchizedekian priest? Well, first of all, in the first 10 chapter, first 10 verses, he talked about this, this figure from Genesis 14 named Melchizedek. And he said, I want you to notice a few things about him. First of all, his name made up, of, uh, made up from two nouns, Melech and Sedek, which means king of righteousness. So he was a king of righteousness and he was the king of Salem or the king of peace. That's the kind of person he was. And the other thing that was unique about him was he was was a king and a priest of God. Two offices of God coming together. This was quite unusual. And then he goes on to say this Melchizedek was greater than even Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. Because he says, you remember what happened with Abraham? Abraham, when he was returning from that war, he paid tithes to this Melchizedekian priest. And then in turn, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the one, Abraham was meant to be the one who is, uh, through whom all the blessings would be channeled out to the rest of the people. And here Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham. And so in this sense, because Melchizedek blesses Abraham and the fact that Abraham gives tithes to uh, Melchizedek, he's saying even Abraham is inferior 
to this great Melchizedek, not in his person, but in his function, in his role as this mediator between God and man. He has a more superior role. In fact, he, then he goes on to argue, which also means that the Levites who would come from the line of Abraham, they are also, by Abraham being a representative father, was paying tithes to them. So showing that the Melchizedekian priesthood was even greater than the Levitical priesthood. And then he goes on to say, but you know, you need to understand, but God had mentioned that there would be a new priesthood that would come about. This was talked about in Psalm 110, the, the, the passage that we read this morning where God swore that the Messiah that would come, the ultimate ruler that would come, he would not just be a king, but he would also be a priest forever. And this Messiah is, is Jesus himself, who is both king and priest. So there's now a change in the priesthood. That it's not just a priest according to the Levitical order, but this is a royal priest, a king priest. And because there's a change in the priesthood, there's also a change in the law, in the requirements of what's needed for a priesthood. Because all these other priests came from the line of Aaron from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus, on the other hand, came from the tribe of Judah. And then so he the, the implication is, therefore, that now this new priesthood has come, this old priesthood, old Levitical priesthood has been set aside. And then he concluded by saying, the law is weak and useless in that it's only able to teach, but never able to complete the work of redemption. And then he says, with Jesus being the Melchizedekian priesthood, the, with Jesus being the Melchizedekian king-priest, there is a better hope of actually drawing near to God, which no priest previously could do. So now we come to this last section of chapter 7, verses 20 to 28. And he's really going to explain, so, so through Jesus, this king priest, we have a better hope of drawing near to God. But what makes Jesus as this new king priest, what makes him so great? What makes him so much more superior than all these other priests? And by way of outline, he's going to tell us three things that makes Jesus greater than all the other priests that came before. In verses 20 to 22, he's going to say that Jesus is superior than all the other priesthood because first he's the guarantee of a better covenant. Then he's going to say Jesus is superior to all the other priests because he is able to complete the work of salvation in verses 23 to 25. And then lastly, the third reason why Jesus is superior to all the other high priests is because Jesus is the only one that's fully suited for the sinner's every need in verses 26 to 28. So let's look at reasons why Jesus is this superior high priest. He's greater than all the other priests that have come before. In fact, he's going to essentially argue that he's the only one we need, and he's the only one we need to cling on to, and if we don't cling on to him, then it's to our death, it's to our demise. 
So firstly, Jesus is greater than all the other priests because he's the guarantee of a better covenant. Verses 20 to 22. It reads, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, this is quoting again Psalm 110 verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So the author is thinking of Psalm 110.4 and he's explaining the significance of what has been said there. What he's doing then is comparing the priesthood of Jesus with the previous Levitical priesthood, particularly emphasizing that there's one distinctive between the two and it's that God made an oath. See, the Levitical priesthood was something that God himself had given under the law of Moses. And it was for a period of time in biblical history. And his point is that when these, when these priests were appointed though, that God did not make any oath. But when Jesus was appointed as this king priest, a new kind of priest, a royal priest, God swore an oath to Jesus saying, you are going to be a priest forever. And the reason there was no oath concerning the Levitical priesthood, because by implication, it was always intended to be a temporary priesthood. See, the Old Testament law, along with its priesthood, was always meant to be temporary. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament priesthood was bad, but it served a particular purpose. The purpose was this. The whole priesthood was teaching people about the character of God. That God couldn't simply be approached just like that by a sinful person. God was holy and man was sinful. And that's why God instituted this mediator between God and man. This priest. And only through this priest could they approach God. And so this is something that the Levitical priesthood taught the people again and again in the way it was instituted, just by way of this institution. But it was never meant to be perfect. One um, commentator says this. Now this is not suggesting that the Levitical priesthood was contrary to God's will or intention. He's simply emphasizing that it had a built-in absolescence. I mean, think of it like this. Uh, many of the electronic things that we own now, like, say, a TV or a washing machine, for example. You know, they don't make it like how they used to. You know, back in the day, some of these things would last forever. You could almost throw it around and misuse it as much as possible, and it would just still keep going. It would never just break down. But you think of the TVs and the washing machines that they make these days. They don't last that long. There's really a, there's a built-in uh, obsolescence in that sense. After five to seven years, it just crashes. Why? Because now the company has realized, oh, you know what? If it doesn't last that long, then they have to buy another one and buy another one, and now it's profit for the company. So there's a built-in obsolescence for a lot of these electronic things now. And so in a similar sort of way, 
the Levitical priesthood, it was never meant to be permanent. It was always preparing the way and pointing to this ultimate and perfect priest that would be a go-between God and man. Uh, It was always pointing to this perfect mediator that was to come. This ultimate priest that would come, and then once that ultimate priest would come, this old priesthood would become obsolete. And that ultimate priest, that final and perfect priest has come in the person of Jesus. And he's of a different order of priesthood with this combination of king and priest. He's not just merely a priest, he's a king and a priest. And the fact that this priesthood of Jesus is permanent and final is confirmed by the fact that God has now sworn an oath to Jesus saying, you are a priest forever. This is not a temporary thing. And for added emphasis, it also adds that the Lord will not change his mind regarding this priesthood of Jesus. Now the idea of God swearing an oath, the author has already talked to us about this in in chapter 6, right? We looked at this where, you know, we saw that God doesn't need to swear an oath. His word is completely trustworthy. Then why does God swear an oath on top of what he has said? We saw this in chapter 6. It's for our sake, right? Because we are prone to doubt. So God wants, to, wants us to be doubly sure when he swears on top of what he has said. He wants us to be doubly sure that this new order priesthood as king priest that Jesus is appointed as is the final and permanent priest that will come. There's no one after this. And so verse 22 it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now what's a guarantor? A guarantor is someone who guarantees the obligations of a covenant. You know, you could say the guarantor stands as a sort of security, as insurance possible, you know, as insurance liability, this person, to ensure that the obligations are met with whatever uh, covenant is made or whatever treaty is made, or whatever is said. In fact, there's one example of it which we've seen already in the book of Genesis. You think of the time um, of Jacob and his 12 sons, where Joseph is thought to be dead, and many years have passed. But, and we saw in Genesis that, you know, Joseph wasn't actually dead. Joseph had actually been preserved by God, and God raised him up to be the prime minister of Egypt, sort of like the prince of Egypt. Now, there was a time when there was famine in the land. So many years have passed. Joseph has gone missing for so many years. He's now the prime minister of Egypt. And there's famine in Canaan. And Jacob and the rest of his sons, they don't have much food. The only place there is food at this time is in Egypt. So the brothers go from Canaan, they go to Egypt, they get some food, and then they're told by the prime minister, who, by the way, is Joseph, and the brothers don't recognize him, that they would have to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, if they needed food again. And so Jacob, the father, listening to this, says, 
No, that's not going to happen. I've lost one son of mine already, Joseph, many years ago. He was my beloved son. But I'm not going to lose my other beloved son, who is Benjamin. I'm not going to let him go. And we saw there what happened. Judah steps up. Judah steps up and says, Father, I will guarantee his safety. I will be his guarantor. You can hold me personally responsible for him. So that if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame. And I can be, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be cut off from the family and even from the family inheritance. Be a nobody after that. So that was the guarantee that Judah gave. And so listening to that, then Jacob sort of reluctantly lets Benjamin go with the rest of the brothers. Now they go back to Egypt again, they get the food and they come back. But as they're coming back, they stopped again. Why? Because now in one of the sacks, particularly in Benjamin's food sack, there's a silver cup that belonged to the prime minister, Joseph. Joseph was orchestrating all this. And so they're all brought back. And you remember at that time, Joseph says, all of you can go back because none of you are guilty, but Benjamin will stay back in Egypt. He's going to stay here forever. And Judah at that point again stands up, puts his hands up and says, uh, he explains the situation and he says, Lord, if it pleases you, let me trade places with Benjamin. Let me be a slave in his place. And let this boy return to his father. Now what's going on here? This is Judah ensuring as the guarantor that the obligations of what he told his father would be met. And he's saying, I will give my life for that in exchange for so that the obligations of what I've said will be met. So it's the same idea that the author of Hebrews is putting before us. What he's saying is that Jesus is not just a mediator, but he's the guarantor of a better covenant. And he said, why is that such a big deal? Well, because the old covenant given under Moses, along with its laws and the priesthood, it was always meant to be temporary. Right? The whole, that whole old system, that old covenant system, it was only meant to teach people in a figurative form or in picture form on how to draw near to God, just in the various institutions that it had. And essentially, it was preparing the way for Jesus. That was the job of this old system, of this old covenant system. But it was never meant to actually accomplish the work of reconciling people to God. See, but why? Because the Old Testament was inherently weak in that it couldn't perfect anything, in that it couldn't complete the work of salvation. So that's why this old covenant, this old regulation has been set aside. It's been rendered obsolete. And we touched on this last week in verses 18 and 19 of the same chapter, Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. So the old covenant, the old regulation has been set aside. It was weak, inherently couldn't accomplish salvation. It just had one function, that's to picture point to and teach about God's plan of salvation. 
But now God has set up a new covenant, a better covenant with Jesus appointed as the final king priest. A different order to that of what the Old Testament law demanded. It's not a, from the tribe of Levi, but this is a king priest. A new, and so therefore now a new system is in place. And so the question is, with this new system in place, new requirements for a priest, because he's not of the Levitical order, the question is this. Now will this new covenant, will this new system be permanent, or will this also be replaced at some point? Answer, no. Why? Why can we be sure that this new system, this new covenant, this better covenant will not be replaced? How can we be sure? Because Jesus is the guarantor of this new covenant. God has made an oath saying that Jesus is the final and permanent priest-king. Now you might be wondering, okay, but what's so special about this new covenant, this new system? Well, great question, Uh, and the author will go on to explain the significance of this new covenant in the next chapter in Hebrews 8. But one thing I would say is this, that this new covenant, this new system, is one in which, which can accomplish everything that God wanted to accomplish in his salvation plan. Why? Because according to this new system, there's a new order of priesthood. This combination of king-priest is there. And because of this combination of king-priest, this combination of two offices found in Jesus, he can now fulfill everything that God has planned in terms of his redemptive plan. And really, this is connected to what the author has talked about previously as well. Again, going back to chapter 6. Remember, the author talked about the Abrahamic promises. And we talked about the fact that the Abrahamic promises, it revolved around three main categories, right? Land, seed, and blessing. So when you consider the significance of that, it not only had to do with these Abrahamic promises, not only had to do with the nation of Israel, but it also had to do with the blessing of the nations and beyond that, even the entire cosmos. Because where everything will be renewed and that creation blessing would come about on the earth. That's what these Abrahamic promises were ultimately about. And really, what are those Abrahamic promises? it really sums up God's redemptive plan, right? So when these promises were given to Abraham, if you remember, and his descendants, this was another time where God swore an oath. So God said this, then on top of that, he swore by himself. Why? Again, to give double assurance to those who are listening. And the author's point there was that if God has been faithful to bring about one aspect of the seed promise to Abraham, then God will be faithful to accomplish his entire plan of redemption. He's able to bring about all the promises that were given to Abraham. But here's the thing. Under the old covenant, 
the various institutions and the figures in, under the old covenant simply pictured what God was going to do as far as redemption is concerned. So the old covenant, it did that job, but now it's been set aside and a new covenant, a new system has been put in place with Jesus as a king priest, a different order priest. And now God makes an oath again saying, this Jesus, this royal priest is going to be priest forever and I swear it with an oath, there is no one after him. And what that means is this, that Jesus being the final priest, all those promises of God's redemptive plan are now tied to one particular person, this priest king. All those redemptive promises are now tied to this singular person, Jesus Christ, this final royal priest, because he's the only one that can fulfill that plan. So there's no, no going back to another system again after this. There's no going back to the old system either. Jesus is the guarantor of this new covenant. Now this was important for the Jewish Christians to understand. I mean, you can imagine for years and years and years and years, generation after generation, the Jewish people those who lived under the old covenant, they always had Levitical priests. They always had these human priests. They always approached God only through these human priests. But now as Jewish Christians, because they were being persecuted, they're tempted to go back to those old ways and go back to those old you know, human priests in the temple. And the author's point is this. If you want any hope of the promises of God's plan of redemption, that can be only found in Jesus, in this final permanent priest king. And God has promised this with an oath. So here's the thing, brothers and sisters, for those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, how can you be sure that you will ultimately be reconciled to God and all the promises of God will certainly be yours. I mean, it's certainly not by looking at you and thinking, oh, you know what, I live a pretty good uh, Christian life, and hey, look at me, and because of that, I deserve all the promises of God that he has talked about in his plan of salvation. No, not at all. The reason you can be sure that you will be ultimately reconciled to God and all those promises will be yours is because God has sworn by oath that Jesus is your final high priest, a different order priest, a king priest who guarantees that through this new system, he will bring about all the promises of God's redemptive plan. And so the author now wants to expand on this further and here we come to our second point what makes Jesus greater or superior to all the other priests is the fact that Jesus is able to com actually complete the work of salvation verses 23 to 25 the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
but he, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The author is now explaining the, the whole significance of Jesus as this new high priest who's been made forever. What is the significance of that? Well, just think of the priests of all. There were lots of priests under the old system in the nation of Israel. And the reason why there were lots of priests is because they kept dying. These priests would only serve till the age of 50. And then they would retire and they would ultimately die. And then a new priest would come and take their place. And most often it's that priest's son who would take that place. Because remember, it's based on lineage. But there always had to be a successor. And this was the only way to keep this old priesthood going. And so this was a reminder that this priesthood, this old priesthood, could never get the job done of ultimately bringing God's plan of salvation. Because their office would be cut off after some time, and they would finally die. And I want you to think, the, think of the problem with regards to the people of Israel. Just think with me for a moment from an Israelite's perspective. For 25 years, from age 25 to age 50, that's the tenure of the high priest. The people had a high priest. Now let's just think, for just namesake, that this time it was a good priest. I mean, he was the man that represented them before God. This priest, this high priest, was someone who knew their sins, knew their griefs, knew their family problems. Yet he was kind and gentle and caring. He was someone who helped them in their spiritual needs. And someone who would then represent them to God. He would be their mediator. And now, this priest has died. And his son has taken his place. But the son is nothing like his father. He doesn't love the Lord like his father. He doesn't care for the people like his father. But he is now the new high priest. But you say, why? How can such a person be the high priest? Because remember, the qualification with the high priest was what? It was just that you need to be of the right lineage, right family line. If you came from the tribe of Levi, and if you came from the line of Aaron, that's all that was needed. No other personal qualifications were required to be a high priest under that old order. And so you can imagine when that one priest died, beloved priest died, and a new one came, there was a break in that comfort of having someone who would, at least in picture, reconcile you back to God. It was a reminder that God's work of salvation and reconciliation could not be completed by this priesthood. It was always broken. And the fact that there were so many successes, one dies, another one in its place, another one in its place. So it was always pointing ultimately to, to the need of having this final priest, this effective priest that would, could even conquer death and would remain forever. That's what it was pointing to because it kept going like that. And that is exactly what we have in Jesus. Because Jesus holds a priesthood that is permanent. 
There's never going to be any other successor after Jesus. There will never be another priest after Jesus. Jesus' priesthood is final and permanent. Why? Because the author says he continues forever. And why does he continue forever? We touched on this uh, last week, Hebrews 7, 7 and verse 16. Because he pr- possesses an indestructible life. A life that has overcome death. And that happened when Jesus rose from the dead on the third day after he was crucified and he died on that cross. And so because of this indestructible life, he continues forever and therefore his priesthood is permanent and final. It's not going to go anywhere. No other success is needed. He's going to remain the final king priest, a new order priesthood and the permanent priesthood. And so the author says, and so because he remains forever, verse 25, consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. See, because Jesus is a priest whose life has even overcome death, he's able to save to the uttermost. Now this word uttermost It has two nuances, and most commentators agree that both those nuances uh, are at play here. In the one sense, uttermost in the sense of, in the temporal sense, in the time sense, as in uttermost, as in forever, for all time. But it can also, uttermost also has a qualitative sense, in the sense of being complete or being total. Or in other words, Jesus is able to save completely, fully, and he is able to save eternally for all time. So in that sense, he's able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save fully and for all time. Now this saving that it's talked about here, the salvation... It's not just regards to sin, but everything that pertains to salvation. And so what this means is that when Christ saves someone, it's not like, you know, God started a work in you, you know, where you're justified and declared righteous, and then he just leaves you to be. Okay, now you finish on the work and march on to glory. No, he will complete that job that he has started of salvation in that person. He will change that person from the inside out so that in glory there will be no sin whatsoever or any fleshly weakness in that person. I mean, think about this. For those of us who are Christians, and what this means is everything about our body, everything about our mind, everything about our will, everything about our emotion, everything, 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 the the whole sum of that person of who we are, will become what God intended in in his plan of redemption. I mean, just think about, I'll just think of just some of the various things there. Think of the body. We're not going to have this kind of body. A body that that grows weak as we age. A body that experiences pain and tiredness and, and sickness. No, we'll have a glorified body, a perfect body, a body that will never age. Think of our emotions. 
I mean, God has given us emotions, but they don't operate rightly right now. You know, sometimes our emotions and e- even our desires, th- they don't match with the truth of who God is. God can be good, and yet we can be very bitter because of the circumstances and whatever else. And so uh, sometimes we know a truth to be right, and yet because of our emotions, we, even our desires, we desire something else that is sinful. So things are acting out of sync. But Jesus is able to save completely, fully. That means even our emotions and our desires will be completely perfected. Completely as God intended it to be. Jesus is able to do that. It means that we will be crowned with glory and honor, the kind of glory and honor that Adam and Eve were bestowed at at the start. It means that with these new bodies, this new glorified bodies cleansed within and without, we will be in a new earth ruling and reigning with Christ where peace will reign, righteousness will reign, joy will reign. God is going to accomplish all of it in you if you are in Christ. And that's the qualification here. If you are in Christ. You look back at 25 again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Christ. See, this salvation to the uttermost is only possible in and through Christ. It's not through anyone else. It's not by simply saying a prayer or thinking you can go to purgatory and do something and somehow you'll be saved ultimately. It's not by praying to the saints. It's not by praying to Mary or anything like that. It's not not by going to a human priest because he cannot do anything. And the human priest was something that was there under the old system. A new priest, Jesus, has come. And he is permanent and he is final. And that means that it is only in and through him, all who draw near to God, through Jesus and Jesus alone, will be saved to the uttermost. Jesus said in John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the question is, but, but why? Why is Jesus able to save to the uttermost? The author adds, there's a last phrase in verse 25. It says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, the priest's job was to offer sacrifice and based on that sacrifice then to intercede for the people on their behalf. Um, And what is being said here is Jesus now as this perfect final high priest, this royal priest. He's the permanent priest and he always lives to make intercession for his people. 
I love that. I mean, think about that. His priestly work just didn't finish at the cross. No, his priestly work is ongoing, even now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, where he's interceding for his people. Now, what does that mean, that he's interceding for his people? It means that, and why, why does Jesus need to keep interceding for his people? Well, we, his people, still sin. We continue to sin. We continue to fall short. We continue to fall away. And so it's not just some merely human priest that is interceding. It is Jesus, the God-man, the king priest, who makes intercession for us, saying, I have paid the price for that sin. And he is now to be accepted. See, one correction that I, um, I want us to have in our minds, because sometimes you know, people can think, because Jesus is the one who is now interceding before the Father, it can seem like, oh, the Father is the bad guy. He's the one who's coming to judge. Oh, I'm going to judge this guy. I'm going to judge this guy. And Jesus is coming and pleading. Oh, please, please, listen, be- because of my sacrifice, uh, let him go. You know, he's safe. No, th- that's not what's happening at all. Because remember, there's only one God, but three persons. And this plan of redemption was God the Father who planned it, God the Son who accomplished it, and then the Spirit who applies it. They have different roles. But they're not opposed to one another. Their character is not opposed to one another. So as a triune God, in however way we want to think of it, yes, there is the justice of God demanding Whenever a believer sins, justice needs to come. But at the same time, there's the love of the triune God that is seen in and through Jesus then standing there as the perfect intercessor based on his sacrifice saying, Lord, I have done your work. And based on my work, they are to be accepted. But then I would say his intercession work even goes on to even what we talked about, help in time of need. Like when we think of Jesus' talk, Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Gospel of John, for example, where he says, you know, I have prayed not to take them out of this world, but to keep them from the evil one. Or when he says to Simon Peter, where he says, Satan has asked to sift you, but I have prayed for you so that your faith would be firm, that you would not be shaken, that you would not fall astray. So even in that sense, based on the fact that Jesus is there, his very witness, the very fact that he's sacrificed and he's standing there at the right hand of the Father, that's a pledge and that's a plea and that's his constant intercession. His living there at the right hand of the Father is constant intercession enough for his people to keep them going to the end and to protect them from all harm as well. I think there's implication for us as believers as well. You know, sometimes when we think, you know, I, I, I just need to be more godly, and what that means is I just need to keep doing and doing and doing. Yes, there's nothing wrong with the disciplines and all of that. But we can get into this mode of, if I can just 
get things better, then I will be more accepted in my sight. And yet that's not how any of us are going to be saved. It's only through Jesus, his sacrifice and his intercessory work. Perhaps there's someone here who is caught up in some sin. And you just think, I don't know how I'm ever going to be saved. You know, I've committed such horrible sins and I just continue to sin. I want you to understand you have in the person of Jesus someone who can save you to the uttermost, who can save you completely, and can save you eternally for all time. That means no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what sins you've committed, Jesus has the power to save you. If you recognize your sin and that you stand guilty before him, then call out to him. Repent of your sins and believe in him. Believe that he died on the cross for you. And believe that therefore he alone is your pledge. And it is in and through him only that the promises of God's salvation will come to you. There's no other way to God. It is only through Jesus Christ. So the author's point here is Jesus' priesthood is permanent. And that means it's a salvation that he accomplishes that is fully complete and forever. But think about what assurance that br this brings to us as well, right? As believers. Remember I just said, for the Old Testament people, they had these temporary priests. And they had some good ones, although never perfect, you know, some sort of assurance and comfort of being reconciled to God. But then it's broken and it's broken and it's broken and it's broken. There's not going to be any breaking in this priesthood of Jesus. He's going to remain priest forever. And that means there's no break in your hope. There's no break in your salvation. There's no cause for doubt because Jesus will be this ultimate priest who can bring you to God. This now brings us to the last point. Why Jesus is greater than all the other high priests and it is that he is fully suited to the sinner's need. He's fully suited to the sinner's need. We'll go through this quickly. Verse 26, it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Fitting in the sense, not deserving, but in the sense of it was, he's the most suitable kind of priest that we need. And there's a few descriptions that's given of Jesus as high priest. It says that he is holy. Now the word here for holy um, it's not your typical word for holy. It denotes more the idea of a ceremonial holiness, in the sense of someone who's set apart ceremonially for this work. So he's a priest that has been set apart in that sense for this priestly work. 
He's been set apart by God. And then the second description is that he is innocent. And that refers to his, um, his morality, that he was perfect, morally perfect in every sense. Now you can think of you know, all the times that Jesus lived on this earth. And he had every reason to, to respond in kind when he was mistreated. When he was just surrounded by sin and trials and difficulties. And yet, he remained morally perfect or innocent. The next word there, it says, is that he is unstained. Now the idea of unstained is more the idea of um, undefiled. Now it doesn't necessarily mean uh, moral impurity because if you think of uh, being defiled even under the Old Testament, for example, the, the priests or the people could touch dead bodies and they would be defiled or unclean. So... And what that does is then they are separated from the worship of God. They are separated from God. And so what this is saying is that Jesus was never defiled. He was never stained. And that means he was never separated from God. I want you to think of that. If for a moment Jesus was separated from God, we'd be in trouble. Because the only reason we're accepted is because of Jesus' ongoing mediatory work through his sacrifice and his priestly intercession. But you take out Jesus from there, we're in trouble. Our salvation is not guaranteed. And so Jesus has never been separated. He's never been undefiled. He's never, he's, he's never been defiled. He's been unstained. And then it says, separated from sinners and simultaneously uh, he is exalted above the heavens. Meaning he's, he's so set apart from sinners. He's not like the sinners, but he's someone who is now exalted above the heavens. Now I want you to think about that as well. Let's say you have the king of the land and you need help or you want, to, you want to get things done. You don't simply go to your neighbor. You would go to somebody who is connected to the king because, you know, or he's somebody in high power and he can get that work done. Who's Jesus? He's not just here. He's somebody who's now exalted above the heavens. Where? at the right hand of the Father. He's right there. He can get the job done. He can give us access to the Father and all the need and all the help that we need will come in and through Him. And so this makes Him a well-suited priest for the sinner's need. Someone who's holy, someone who's innocent, unstained, 
separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And then he goes on to say, and so what that means is he has no need, like those other high priests. Other high priests, because they were sinful themselves, they had to offer sacrifices both for themselves and for others, and it was constantly they needed to do that. But Jesus, on the other hand, was morally perfect and innocent and unstained. And therefore, he didn't have to offer sacrifice for himself. In fact, he himself was the sacrifice that he offered. And he did this once and for all. It was an all-sufficient sacrifice. And so then the author says, 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So under the law, there were weak people, weak high priests. But then the oath came, oath came from God that there's going to be a new priest, a king priest and I swear it by oath and that is Jesus. That came after the law and through that he appoints a son, the eternal son who became the incarnate son and who has been made perfect forever. Again that word perfect is the idea of completion. He completed the work of what it means to be a son. As the eternal son took on human flesh, he went through all the sufferings and the trials. And we saw this, he learned obedience. He was made perfect through suffering. And so in all that, he's able to sympathize with his people. He understands what people go through. And so in all this sense, he has become the perfect high priest, the well-suited high priest that we need as sinners. So here's the thing. Do we need a priest to go before God? Yes, absolutely. What kind of priest do we need? We need a king priest, not just a priest. Because only a king priest can accomplish the plan of God's salvation. But to have a king priest, you need a new system, because according to the old system, you could only have priests, the Levitical priests. And so you have a new system, a new covenant that says now you can have a king priest, a king priest then who lives forever, who doesn't die. And because he lives forever, there needs to be no other successor and therefore he's the final priest. And because he's the final priest, he can save to the uttermost, fully, completely, eternally for all time. And Jesus was that person who was fully suited for that role. For those of us this morning who are perhaps discouraged by your sin, discouraged by trials, what scripture is calling you to do is come to your priest king. He's the perfect priest for you. He's the perfect priest that you need. He's the perfect priest who understands your every trial and give you the grace that you need, who will sympathize with you and will help you in your journey, and he will save you to the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that how you have revealed yourself didn't come in one moment in time, but it came over the centuries. And the reason you did that 
is so that we could understand who you are and your plan of salvation. And particularly even at looking at this text, that we would understand the very concept of the need of a priest, even though a lot of us don't, have not grown up in that sort of an environment. The need for a mediator to come between you and sinful man. And we see how then Jesus fulfills that role and he is the high priest that we need and the only high priest that we need and the one who will accomplish the work of salvation. So Lord, when we are discouraged by our sin, help us to remember that Jesus is continuing to intercede for us because of his perfect sacrifice. Lord, when we think too highly of ourselves, think it's all because of us that we will finally be accepted, Lord, even then, humble us and remind us once again that it is only because of Jesus, the high priest, that we are ever accepted in our sight. So, Lord, in light of this, help us, not all this, just not to be just theory, but help us to really love Jesus even more and to cling on to Jesus even more every day of our lives. And even as we do that, that we would bear testimony of how great and wonderful a God you are to the rest of this world. But we pray and ask all these things for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.